You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, my guest today is Jennifer Cates. She's a senior vice president and director of global health policy at the Henry J. Kaiser Family Foundation. Uh, she's been involved in numerous uh, global health issues and, and antivirus issues uh, for, for years and years and years. I spoke to her, of course, about the COVID-19 pandemic and the options that are going to be facing the Biden administration as they take office in January. It's an odd time to be changing over administration, sort of midstream through vaccine distribution. So we talked Talk about vaccine logistics, uh, the science of that, uh, some of the different questions that they'll be facing on a policy level, how you coordinate with states, but also about other measures which are going to continue to be relevant through the early months of a Biden administration, what he can do there to help maintain a sort of sustainable equilibrium. And then we turn to the global picture as well in terms of how can we help make sure that these vaccines go worldwide and really create a safe and healthy environment for everybody. I mean, this is the question that's been on my mind uh, for weeks and weeks is what's Biden going to be able to do with the vaccine? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Uh, I learned a lot. I think you learned a lot. And it ends on an optimistic note that actually for the first time in, in a long time uh, made me feel made me feel better about the COVID-19 outlook. So enjoy. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm here today with Jennifer Cates. She's Senior Vice President at the Kaiser Family Foundation um, and a, a, a person I know also in real life uh, through our kids are in, in the same grade at the same elementary school here. So one of the first people I spoke to about the COVID-19 pandemic before it was a <laughs> topic of uh, dominating news interest. So, you know, we're, we're talking about the, the, the next four years here on this, um, this series of episodes. Uh, but when it comes to the pandemic, I mean, I think the next, the next four months are, mm-hmm. are what's yeah. really urgently on people's minds. And I think that starts with vaccine, which we are hoping uh, vaccines will be approved very, very soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. But then there's a the question of what do you do with them? How do you distribute them? How do you get them out? And that seems like it's going to be the Biden administration's job number one, right? Definitely. And uh, hi, it's good to be here and see you uh, not on the playground. Um, yeah, I think the number one task that the Biden administration is going to be faced with is getting the vaccine or vaccines to as many people in the United States as possible and as quickly as possible. Um, and it's going to be the biggest undertaking of this kind ever. So it's it's no small small feat. And um, this the new administration is going to be coming in, having to hit the ground sprinting. And it, there's going to be a lot of challenges. I mean, there, I don't want to uh, skirt over. There's a lot of great things, too. The science <laughs> is really positive. But in terms of getting a vaccine to people, that's going to be a challenge. And so we have a lot of experience with vaccines, but actually not with a rollout of this kind. Because when polio or measles, mm-hmm. when those vaccines were developed, these were endemic diseases. A mm-hmm. lot of people mm-hmm. had already had them. Mm-hmm. So... It wasn't this kind of race, right? Like, how how can you get 300 million doses out in as quickly a, a span as possible? It's a it's a really sort of an unprecedented public health mission that that the world's governments have given themselves here. 
It really is. I mean, it's not that we can't learn lessons from those other experiences. Certainly, they 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 were challenges, and they still remain challenges um, in other countries. But yeah, nothing like this. I mean, even H one N one what provides some lessons from two thousand nine, but it's not uh, uh you know it's not the same. So this this doesn't really have a, a historical example um, that we can look at and say, aha, that's how we did it. And I would argue that, you know, the uh, there's a lot, probably a lot more complexity now as well. So how does it work? Who is who is we when we talk about this? Like, we. who's actually in charge of, of vaccines? I mean, these are right, private right. companies. Make them. I mean, I, you know, our, our kids get vaccinated when we go to the pediatrician. Uh, right. I get my flu shot at CVS. Like, what's, wh- wh- who who has the, the COVID-19 vaccines? Like, how does this work? <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and it's different than what you and I think of as, like, routine vaccines, right? routine vaccination, where we go to, you know, the pharmacy, get our shots, um, which is its own uh, its own system um, that is complicated as well. But it is, you know, sort of a well oiled system. And in that, but what's important to know is even in that system, a lot of what happens gets decided both by states and local jurisdictions and by the companies. And um, and yet now we're in a pandemic. And we're talking about um, uh, an unprecedented race on the science side. That's quite an amazing story and a good one. But in that case, what, what's happened is the federal government has um, created has gone into relationships with several vaccine manufacturers. In some cases, funding their actual research and development, but in in some cases not. But in all of the cases of the vaccines that we keep hearing about, the federal government is paying in advance for doses. And basically is buying and sort of betting on these uh, manufacturers to find something and then we'll have a certain amount available. Then what happens is a complicated dance between federal government helping to manage a distribution process around the country in some cases, but in others, the vaccine manufacturers shipping directly to private entities. What is going to happen or supposed to happen that I think will be the biggest, one of the biggest challenges is that the states have been asked to manage the assessment of who should get vaccinated first, how much allocation will they need over time, monitoring that, reporting back to the federal government. Um, and while states are typically do do that for routine vaccination, that is not the same in a pandemic. Right. So so in routine vaccinations, it's like different states have have different rules, right? Like you get your vaccination checklist yeah. for schools or, or something exactly. like that. But they're not doing um, emergency prioritization in the same Correct. Way. This is a very unusual, right. So, so states have a lot of leeway in terms of deciding, and, in the, and, and that's the way public health works. Is states decide, you know, in our state, we're going to let um, this, this particular provider vaccinate kids. And in, this, in, our, in our city, we're going to have school requirements that look like this, um, those kinds of things. In in um, in this case, uh, there's a little bit of that, but the there's sort of this this uh, tension between how much are states going to be given that um, that leeway versus what should the federal government's role be in distributing a vaccine during an emergency? When frankly, as we've seen all, all throughout this, the idea that each state does its own thing doesn't really work when you have an infectious disease that's spreading. Right? Um, it's just not how you combat a pandemic. You don't sort of say, well. Go, good luck, everybody out there, all 51 jurisdictions. When you, when you go to test, hopefully you have enough tests and enough lab capacity. Um, you don't, we don't want to do that with vaccines. Well, and since the federal government has paid for the vaccines, yeah, they at least at a high level have to allocate the doses between the states. I would imagine, right? Even yes. if you say it's a hundred percent up to Rhode Island to decide what you do with them, yes, like how much does Rhode Island get? Right. So that is a good question. So what the federal government has said, and I, and I would say that the, you know, the federal government has moved real, very quickly on the vaccine side, um, differently than it has on testing and contact tracing, although that was, you know, maybe that's not the fair, fair comparison because that was so slow. Um, but on the vaccine side, uh, the federal government has said that um, it's letting the uh, regular systems that that recommend prioritization, and in this case, it's a, an advisory committee of the CDC, has um, that will be deciding based on the characteristics of the actual vaccines that are close to approval, what the priority should be. The reason there's there's going to be a priority, the reason you and I are are probably not going to get a vaccine right away is because A, there's not going to be enough doses right away. 
And B, this is going to be a very complicated rollout. So there has to be some prioritization. The first thing that's going to happen is this committee, which is meeting tomorrow, by the way, emergency meeting. And so uh, by the time this comes out, we may actually know who's on that priority list. We have a good idea. Um, then the federal government has said they're going to take the total number of doses that they have at a given point in time and allocate it by, based on state population. So there's, there could have been a lot of different ways that they decided mm -hmm. to allocate it. They went with a very simple, transparent way, which is, you know, Rhode Island, your share of the adult population is this. That's the share of the vaccine you're going to get. Right. I guess the more, going to do it. the more sort of mathematically complicated way to do it would be to say, okay, well, first, this is our high priority population. Yes. And then we're going to allocate based on how many high priority people there are in there. Because uh, we know, I mean, the different states have very different demographic profiles. Um, there's like a, a lot of old people in Florida and Pennsylvania, right. a lot of kids in Utah. I, I mean, I guess the advantage of doing it this way is it's, um, it's easier to explain to people. It's easier to explain. States have a very, you know, one of the things states said, and we can talk about it because we looked at their their plans uh, at KFF. States were um, wanted to know, wanted predictability. Mm -hmm. You know, they wanted to understand how much they're going to get because they're trying to prepare. Um, so that that helps. And yes, it's transparent. It's easy to understand. The problem, is, as you said, is uh, the populations that need this are not distributed evenly. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about healthcare workers or older individuals, um, so this is where I think a Biden administration will have to think about, you know, how heavy a hand does it have in assuring that kind of equity? So, um, you know, so we, we should talk about how, how do we think about prioritization? Um, you know, I, mm -hmm. you're, you're an expert. I, like most people, uh, before this March, all my information about pandemics came from, uh, the movie, uh, Contagion, <laughs> um, in which they, they, they distribute it by a, a, a birthday lottery, which makes yes. for good drama. Because uh -huh. uh, you can have it on television, <laughs> um, I guess. I guess that doesn't make that much sense, right? So, so to me, just looking at you know what's happened over the past uh, several months, it seems like first you want to vaccinate um, people who actually work in the healthcare sector mm -hmm. because yes. if they can stay healthy, they can actually save lives. Exactly. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any disagreement about that, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then next, you could think about, well, who are the people who are the most at risk of serious illness, which mm -hmm. I guess would be people in uh, nursing homes. Correct. Or you could think about, well, who are the people who are most at risk of actually contracting the virus and spreading it to others, right. which right. might be the people working in retail stores, Right. Or or restaurants, some something right. like that, um, and that seems like a tougher. I, I don't know, like not actually knowing anything about it, I could sort yeah. of argue it either, either way, right? Yeah. Like, do they? Is this what what the advisory committees are are here for? That's that's what you hash out. Yeah. So the, so what they have to do is look primarily at, at two kinds of factors. One is what you started to go into, which is who's at risk of getting really sick. And then I'll talk about contracting the infection in a minute, but who's at risk of getting really sick? And then uh, what are the candidates that are that are there? Because some candidates are, are have not been tested in all of the populations we may want them to be tested in. So, uh, for example, none of the candidates have been tested in kids yet. Pfizer just started 12 and up, but that data is not available yet. So kids are not going to be initially in the uh, in the groups that get vaccinated. So that, that we know. But then there's this harder question. Now, the vaccine candidates that are really promising, and actually most of them that are being tested, the first thing that they're looking at is, can our vaccine prevent somebody from getting symptomatic COVID disease? And can it prevent somebody from getting really sick? They haven't yet been able to measure, does it prevent transmission mm. of the infection? So that's one. Secondly, um, they I think because of the the need to allocate a fixed dose in the beginning, they really are going to say healthcare workers, then people who are very high risk of dying um, and are being very, very sick, which is long-term care residents and their staff, um, people with certain underlying health conditions. Um, and then you get into this other, you know, well, who's next? Is it other essential health workers? So health wor healthcare workers, I mean, other essential workers, mm -hmm. you know, um, teachers, Maybe uh, people that that you know run essential businesses. When where do they get in line? And then also the elderly, because we know that 
mortality rates are so much higher. So um, the the committee that is looking at this, and they've been pretty transparent too. They they posted a ton of materials on their on their website, um, uh, and and they are this is exactly what they're doing. They're going through and saying, should it be healthcare workers, then long term care residents, then older people, or should it be you know, and uh, that's what they're going to meet about tomorrow. They're supposed to come out with a recommendation on this is that tomorrow being December 1st for those listening at whatever date. But so you you and I, the the kind of the Zoom class. Right. Um, we are at the end of the. We're at the end. At the end of the line here. Yeah, we are. We're, we're, but, but that's okay. I mean, I think, I think, you know, we have to reach those who are getting sick, prevent them from getting sick and allow people that are, you know, really essential in the true sense of the word to, to get, you know, fix the situation and, and save people's lives and run the essential businesses that, that are needed. And then the idea too is, is while we're waiting, um, that is going to bring down, uh, the virus is, is going, is transmission is just going to start to decrease too over time as um, we start to, uh, you know, continue measures to prevent transmission combined with herd immunity that's going to start to build up. So, um, but yes, we, we, you and I are, I know maybe next summer we're, we'll be, it'll be time for us to get vaccinated, maybe earlier. So this is a question I had. So I, I know doctors like to be cautious about things that yeah. have not been specifically experimentally tested. And right. so with this vaccine, we don't have trials that demonstrate, uh, talking about the, the the Moderna and the um, mm-hmm. the Pfizer vaccines, mm-hmm. um, th- they have strong demonstrated efficacy in terms of preventing mm-hmm. people from developing symptoms. Right. They haven't tested, do they prevent transmission? Right. But in, in terms of we must have some general knowledge of viruses and and vaccines. Yes. Is it is it a common problem that a vaccine successfully stops the development of symptoms, but you still transmit it? Or would that be a kind of a? a I mean, you can't rule it out until you test it. Right. But but would that be like a weird finding? No, actually, there's a lot of vaccines like that. Oh man, where where Anna, we just that don't sucks. Be, because. <laughs> we, but 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 the point is that they work really well. They work enough to bring down. Um, to to create situations where the virus is not able to live mm-hmm. um, in in the same way, and so it's it's not uh, people have get immunity. So if you get the vaccine and it helps you mm-hmm. because you're not getting sick, you also get gain immunity to to the illness. You there's less susceptible hosts ah. in the community, and that creates the herd immunity that we need. So the transmission would decline either because of that. So even if you're I don't know. Somewhere along the line, we'll have 30, 40% of the population vaccinated. And, yep. and you would expect that to start, start to see that. To start, start bringing to down transmission. Definitely. Definitely. And and right, that's the beauty of vaccines. And you know, there's other vaccines like that. A lot of uh vaccines that we do take polio, for example, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't actually stop the transmission of the virus. It just stops people from getting sick. And that is you know, there's not there's a vaccines that do stop the transmission, but not all do, and that's just it depends on the complication of you know how the the actual target, the types of vaccines being used. I think with the case of Moderna and Pfizer, um, the specific uh, platform that they're using, there's a lot of optimism that it will reduce risk of transmission. We just don't have the data yet. Right, but that's because they we they know something about the the biological mechanism. Yep. That exactly. It attacks some protein or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's a pro- protein is 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 beyond beyond my my scope of competency. So this will be starting probably. I, I mean, this will be starting before the inauguration, right? Correct. As long as things it, yes. things go well. So so, but the but the question facing the new administration, I guess, will be that kind of um, how do you expand the rollout? And then also a, a question I have is yeah. how how do you think about the sort of social distancing and and other business restriction measures when mm-hmm. you're in an interim kind mm-hmm. of state because we know there has been a lot of political you know pushback right yeah. so there I, I mean there's some kind of you know public health idealism which would say okay everybody's got to stay stay safe right hunkered all, down until everyone's vaccinated right all the way through <laughs> right. um but at the same time when you have you know some governors like don't want to do mask mandates right in the middle of a huge catastrophe i feel like once vaccines start rolling there's going to be a lot of pressure mm-hmm. to let things open up to let you know 
Mm-hmm. Let the twenty somethings have their house parties. Right. Um, to let the restaurants open their doors fully, get the concerts back going, and like, what wh- wh- what's your thinking on how to sort of yeah. balance that in a reasonable way? Yeah, I think, and it does need to be balanced because I I think you know the vaccines are the light at the end of the tunnel here. That's what we're hoping to get to back to a sense of normal life. It may be different than we remember it, um, but that's okay. I think the the goal, and I think the the not too, not overly optimistic hope is that businesses will be open and people will be returning to regular activities. I think there'll be some things that will, for much longer, will will be cautious about very large gatherings, for example, indoors. I think masks will be an intervention that will be used for a longer period of time, but you know maybe the way to address this, and this is, we can get to the Biden team because I think this is going to be their responsibility, but convincing enough people, and we know this is going to be a really tough thing because of people's feelings about vaccines for a range of reasons, that this this vaccine is going to protect you and others um, and get us back there. And, and the you know, the mask mandates and those kinds of things are going to be important, but not on a forever basis. And I do think we're going to start, it's going to be a, a calibration. I think there's going to be a lot of focus on getting schools open, as as there should be already. Um, but yeah, the the idea that businesses are going to have to be closed for a long, I don't think that, that's where we're headed at all. Um, and I think right, it's hard to talk about it right now because be, in many communities, we're seeing rates rise and, and things are closing again. But this it will not stay like this. And one of the things that the the Biden administration will have to do, and I think they can, is communicate really clearly and really consistently to the public. Clearly, consistently, and often to the public, which is frankly not what we've had thus far. <laughs> no. um, and that has caused a lot of confusion. It has caused the fact that you know states do have authority to make rules and regulations for their populations in, in health, but it's caused this patchwork and the politicization. Um, and there has to be a way around that. And I think the administration could find ways to to have a much stronger, helpful voice on where we're headed. Okay, let's take a break. And th- then I want to follow up on, on that helpful voice. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. So the vaccine is obviously a huge deal. It's it's what everybody is focusing on. But come late January, there's all this other stuff. Is still going to yeah. be in the in the mix, um, and and I know you've been working on I mean, what can the new administration do, uh, mm-hmm. sort of you know in the executive branch authority over public health that might be helpful or hasn't been done already or or just needs yeah. to be renewed. So can you you explain to people some of that what what you've been looking at? Yeah, sure. So it, it's so the new administration is going to come in um, January twentieth will be inauguration, and then there'll be 
you know, dealing with, as we keep reading about and hearing about, uh, you know, potentially a Congress that's not going to want to be that cooperative. So what can they do? There are a number of things that they can do without um, Congress. For example, um, one thing that we've heard a lot about is the Defense Production Act. Remember that, DPA, Mm -hmm. which is an authority that the executive branch has to to call upon and, and basically get private manufacturers to manufacture more things that are needed in crises. And the uh, President Trump has invoked it, but many have said he's not done it enough. And we still have PPE shortages in the Right, United so he States. used it for uh, ventilators. He used it for ventilators, and it worked in that regard. And then has not really gone much, much beyond that. No. Um, and I know, that, so so you talk about uh, manufacturing PPE for, for healthcare workers as a possibility there? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a range of things um, when there's supply shortages that could could be uh, dealt with through the DPA and specifically those things. And so that would be, you know, if I were them, I would do that right away. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's a really, uh, it's the, the authority is there. Um, it's been used already in this pandemic, but many have said it's not been used enough. Um, another thing that actually the new administration is going to have to do immediately um, uh, there have been a number of emergency declarations uh, made by the Trump administration, which is what you do during a, an outbreak. Um, some of them have expiration dates. And there's uh, one in particular actually expires on Inauguration Day. And the reason that I'm bringing that up is it sounds like, you know, arcane, you know, uh, <laughs> government bureaucracy, but that declaration actually frees up the Department of Health and Human Services to have tremendous flexibility to help people you know, expand uh, healthcare options, give states a lot more flexibility to respond to the pandemic and Medicaid, uh, also makes some flexi- provides flexibilities in Medicare, a whole range of things. Without that declaration, you can't invoke, you can't have those flexibilities. So, you know, day one, probably, I don't know, get, do your oath and then renew the declaration. Renew the public health emergency declaration will be another one. So, the, I mean, the, the way this works, right, is, yeah, I mean, the federal government spends all this money and these grants to states and these joint programs, yeah. and all the money is sort of accounted for, right? Yeah. By, by Congress, it's like, this is money for this, this is money for that. Yeah. And obviously, when they were like designing Medicare, there's no provision for COVID 19. Um, right. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but so then, because they're not idiots, like, the president can make emergency declarations yes. that let you repurpose money, you know, that's appropriated or it's in the entitlement funding streams, but lets you use it for different kinds of things. It's a kind of, you know, loophole. And it's important to do it because so much um, so much healthcare uh, spending takes the form of these kind of Medicaid, right? Yes. These, these joint yes. state and federal yeah. initiative. So everything that's happening depends on renewing that that flexibility. A lot that's happening depends on renewing that flexibility. And it, I, I know it will, it's been renewed several times by the Trump administration. It, it has a 90-day shelf life and then you got to renew it again. It's just that it does, you know, I don't know if they specifically timed it that way, but January 20th <laughs> is when it expires. So that's another one. The, the other thing that I think this the new administration could do is put out some really early, very clear national guidelines on a range of things, whether it's vaccines and, and, and talk or guidance to states, but also more on, on testing and more on social distancing, why are face masks important to really send stronger signals throughout the country on things that we know that the federal government has been reluctant to weigh in on. And, you know, that's that's been because of politics. It's been because of a different view about the role of the feds and the states. But I think, uh, the new administration really has an opportunity to come in and 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 change that dynamic. What's the what's the actual authority, right? I mean, the the federal government can't do a mask order, Correct. right? That's a state thing. I mean, I guess you could apply it to airplanes or something. Uh, yes, but, but all the yes. airlines require it already. Yes. I mean, so that would be more symbolic. I think that right. then practical. It would, and it, and you know maybe it's too late in the sense that it's been unfortunately so politicized. But I don't believe it's too late because I, I really I do think that when you start to see, I mean, think about our own neighborhood when when we all started wearing masks, it was a little odd, uh-huh. and now it's <laughs> it's normal. I mean, you know, now if you don't see somebody with a mask, and particularly if you're walking with your kid, you get a whole public health lecture from a five year old about why that person isn't wearing a mask. So I, I do think that if we had national leadership that was very clear 
about masks and why um, it was so critical for uh, for getting us through this. And in fact, it's an alternative to many of the measures that people don't like, mm-hmm. the, the closing businesses and other things. Um, I think if we had that clear presentation of that information on a regular basis where it was very obvious and 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 um and people were not made to to feel bad about their choices but to really be supported i think it could make a difference and i that, that's what i yeah there's no there's not the same kind of teeth uh, it's not a federal mandate um they can't do that but they can do a lot to to push and maybe change the psyche around this i do think that the future of public health may be training 5 year olds to run around and scold people because they're very, uh, we, we both have, have five-year-olds, they're, they're very yeah. rigid, um, yes. but also people respond better to being scolded by They do. Like, like cute children said, than by yeah, me. I, I could be in danger if I said something, but my kid. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah no. It's, so send them, yeah. send them after the smokers and, you know, everyone, everyone out totally. there. Totally. That's, that's what it's, that's what it's going to be. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I do think... I mean, it's it's weird to me the way the mask thing has gone because it's yeah. such a low cost. It's inaccessible in public health. It's so rare, honestly, because especially since I work, my background's on HIV uh, policy. It's so rare to have an intervention that's cheap, accessible, easy to use, and has such a big impact, like a, a mask. And and yet, it's become this political football, which is really too bad because it works. But also a challenging thing in, you know, you hear a lot about about sort of politics and, you know, Trump fanatics or or, or something mm-hmm. like that. But, you know, I, I tried to take the, the city bus a couple weeks ago. I figured mm-hmm. it'll be fine. You know, they're not that crowded. People are wearing masks. I had my mask on and I got on and there was a guy there and he like, he had a mask, but he wasn't wearing it. So I said, like, you should wear your mask. And he was like, fuck you. And then, I don't know, like, yeah. I don't know what to do. You know, like, yeah. like the bus driver wasn't going to make Didn't him do it. Yeah. And, and so I just got off, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's fine. It was, it was no big deal. But I do, I do wonder about some of this stuff. I mean, it, it seems like public health relies to a f- fair amount on sort of suasion and social consensus rather mm-hmm. than hard enforcement mm-hmm. of, of these kinds of things. Um, and I just saw today, you know, Phil Murphy, the governor of New Jersey, he was saying that 70% of people who contact tracers get in touch with wouldn't cooperate, mm-hmm. um, which I assume, I mean, that can't just be partisan Mm-mm. motives no, in, in New Jersey, right? I mean, Americans don't seem super inclined to cooperate in in the kind of way that that I feel like we need. Definitely, as somebody working in public health, I think about this a lot. And I, I you know, when dissecting all the reasons why the U.S. has done so poorly in this in response to this pandemic, compared to some other countries, uh, you know, there's so many factors. And one, I do think we have a very different cultural persona sense of of what it what it means to exist in a society than other other countries do and the idea that you do something that benefits others around you is not necessarily the baked into uh that our sense in the same way in, in other countries where masks were are, are being worn and have been worn for years um and uh and and I it's a big challenge and so there's uh one one school of thought I wouldn't say most public health people are in this school of thought is you know, there's the the punitive, uh, the stick, and I, that doesn't really work. You know, punishing people for not doing something in the public health sense it, it, it backfires. I think the other is 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 recognizing that this is a complex territory, and you have to find ways to um, not shame people and support them in making choices. Um, harm reduction is is what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. and so try to help people realize that they there's a lot that they can do, and they have the power to do it. Um, but no, it's there's no there's no magic here. It's why, I mean, seatbelts is a good example of, of how that, that was a structural intervention, mm-hmm. right? Where um, the government basically imposed a structural fix to a problem where um, people were, were not changing behavior and it was deadly. Um, and I'm not sure we can do that here. So it's going to be, it's going to be hard. 
Um, you know, I sometimes wonder if the initial mask data had been as clear that masks help the wearer, mm-hmm. that if that would have made a difference. Because remember the initial messages were wear a mask because it protects people around you mm-hmm. in case you have COVID. And, you know, I think what if it had been wear a mask because you'll be protected? We might have had better compliance in the beginning. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that was an interesting you know, faced with ambiguous information, right? Yeah. People people have to choose what they want to say. And it yeah. was definitely clearer that it was protective to others right. than protective to yourself. But, you know, there was always some reason to believe that there was totally. a self I mean, uh, frankly, it like... sense. The, if you think about it, you don't, you know... If you think yeah. about the general phenomenon yeah. of wearing masks and breathing... Right. right, like it works in both directions. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm not a doctor, but I I have breathed, um, and yeah, I mean, it was a it was an interesting choice to position it primarily as as pro social, and I think that the thinking was, I mean, part of the thinking was about the data, but part of the thinking was that people felt that wearing a mask was cowardly. Yeah, right. So they yeah. wanted to to position it as a as a noble. Yeah. like, other-oriented um, kind of act, which, you know, it makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, but also, like, people don't want to get sick. And right. <laughs> just telling them, like, do this and you won't get sick, you know, could have could have maybe gotten further. Uh, so, you, I mean, you've worked a lot in HIV-AIDS yeah. um, space over the years. Um, and there's a sort of parallel situation there, right, with how w- what what sides of self-protection versus society mm-hmm. do you want to emphasize in in messages? And I, I assume things have gone, you know, in different directions at, at different points in time. Um, but it, it doesn't seem to have worked, at least the the, the mask message in, in the... I mean, I don't know. I mean, people wear masks, uh, yeah. but but not a lot. I think it's worked better than people know. Mm. And, and the data, all the data that have come out, like CDC just had a, um, a study last week, or the week before, showing, um, I forgot where it was, but in the United States where mask mandates um, really decrease cases. And there's study after study that show that. So, But I'm not sure that that's gotten out mm. as much as it needs to. So I, I think that we've been so, what we see in the, the in you know, that comes before our eyeballs um, is always around the politicization of this. And, you know, this state has a mandate that doesn't, but the data, the data that really show this works. Um, they're there. I mean, it's pretty. It's pretty astonishing mm-hmm. how how strong the correlation is. And so maybe the, the one of the answers is to get that information out. Yeah. I don't know. Emphasize the positive. Okay. Let's let's take another break, and, and then yeah. I want to come back to you. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmo, Sweden. But this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes. Correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that that Israel should be able to participate in Eurovision. Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. Because this has been such an acute problem in the United States, um, and you know it, it it burdens us us all. You know, I've become very sort of self centered in a lot of my thinking. Uh, but of course, this is a global problem, and and you you work on on global health issues, and, and I wonder what are the sort of prospects for I don't know like vaccine assistance. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, the, everything that makes it hard to run a major vaccination program gets harder when you talk about countries with, you know, less less transportation yeah. infrastructure, less money, uh, fewer things like that. It's obviously not uh, the kind of thing Donald Trump, like, sweats a lot 
Um, yeah. But but I imagine, I mean, part of, you know, Joe, Joe Biden wants to go back to America's traditional role as a, as a stakeholder in the world. Uh, he says he wants to rejoin the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. How, do, how does this work when you start taking a more international view? Yeah, so, yeah, definitely, 100%, we will, we'll, we will see uh, Biden, um, you know, stay in the WHO, uh, be at the table for that conversation, and reassert the role that the, the positive role that the U.S. plays on the global stage. Um, and, you know, to some extent that that has been because there's been this sort of American tradition of it's the right thing to do and that's what we do. But I think that's, uh, of course, that I share that. But I think we're also dealing with a pandemic where, you know, if we truly want to end this, it doesn't make sense. Just like it doesn't make sense to get one state vaccinated. Mm-hmm and not have other other states vaccinated. It doesn't make sense to have a couple countries vaccinated. Right, we want people to don't. be able to go to Mexico and come back or yeah. whatever Unless else. we permanently and do it the right way, which most countries have never done, you know, shut everybody's borders down, which is not going to happen. It makes no sense and it would tank the economy everywhere. And it just it's just not the solution. Um, you know, it, you can't, we can't get out of this problem unless we achieve a certain amount, a certain share of herd immunity globally. And the vaccine is the way to do that. Um, so many countries, in fact, just about every country except the U.S., Russia is also out of not participated, have come together to try to solve this problem. Um, they haven't solved it yet, but they've created something called COVAX. They they've um, they're working on finding ways to make sure that those countries that have less means will have access to the vac- vaccine. Um, and, and you know, I think that that's the hope there. And the U.S. can will assuredly play in that world again. In terms of the challenges that will be faced with getting vaccine to people in lower infrastructure environments, I think there's been proof again and again that it can be done. So not not to un, not to minimize those challenges, but I, I think more the bigger challenge is going to be making sure that the rich countries of the world don't buy up all the vaccine doses, um, and then you know forget that they have to. That's it's not just a fairness issue, but it's a public health one. So, but you you think just keeping the sort of money flowing so that the doses keep rolling off the line and and getting shared that that's that's sort of the big the big that's sticking the big, point. I do think that's the big sticking point. I mean, I think we'll, we we have a lot of experience in delivering medications and vaccines in hard to reach areas, and so I, I think that can be overcome. It still will need support. Um, but uh, the first the first order of business there is is finding a way to get the vaccine to to those countries and, and to everybody. And do you think that there's going to be a significant issue? I mean, domestically or internationally, of people not wanting to 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 take it. I mean, we we were talking originally about prioritization, where the the assumption yeah. is, you know, I I'd like to get a vaccine, you yep. know, on December seventeenth, uh, <laughs> but they're not going to let me, right? Because it's I'm not right. I'm not I'm not important enough. Um, but <laughs> but then you you do eventually get to the other side of it, where you know the government right. the government wants everybody to get measles vaccines, uh, but not everyone does, and we could have a similar problem here. And we and not everyone gets the flu vaccine either, mm-hmm. and that's one that's you know just oh by the way we should have said this earlier COVID vaccine is going to be free that's in, good. in the U.S. so that's not going to be a barrier but um, you know flu vaccine's free it's it's recommended it's free to those with insurance um, anyway uh, yeah the on the on the other side of this you know just like we'll anticipate there'll be demand from people who want the vaccine but aren't yet in line there's going to be pushback. Um, there's, there's lots of reasons for that. There's people that are just anti-vax, right? Mm -hmm. But they, they've existed for a while. So that's, that's, um, they're still there. Then there's just people who are going to be hesitant. They, this is a new thing. Can we trust the government in, in, you know, after everything that's happened last few months, some anxiety around that. Um, I mean, I've heard some, you know, some people say if it's the vaccine is coming out under the Trump administration, I don't want it. Some people saying if it's coming out of the Biden administration, I don't want it. You know, so there's going to be people who are just, <laughs> I don't know how many there are, but, but then there's people who, who really do have valid concerns and history, um, with, uh, you know, government medical interventions. And I'm speaking mostly of people of color in this country who have a, you know, not a good history with that. And, um, and then just, just, just a lot of, concern. This is a new vaccine. I mean, my, my mom, so I work in, obviously I work in public health and she knows that, and she keeps raising all kinds of anxieties with me about safety and should she get it? And uh, of course I'm going to make sure she does when she, when she's 
up. But um, so we have to overcome that and, and misinformation. I mean, that is going to be one of the biggest challenges here. So yeah, on the on the uptake side, that's going to be hard. Um, what I what's hard to know is once it gets rolled out and people start to see that things are changing, and more and more people they know are getting vaccinated and people are talking about it. I that may go a long way to change some of that hesitancy. Mm-hmm. But we, you know, that's just a hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, I I always get the sense, at least with the flu vaccine, like one reason that the take up is not so strong is that the the vaccines themselves are not that I don't know I was going to say they're not that potent um, they're not correct they're not as they're they're not as effective as we anticipate the, this vaccine being right and there's a and there's a paradox right because as an individual the less effective the vaccine is like the less inclined I am to yeah. to bother to go get it even if it's just taking some time out of my day but the more important it is from a social perspective, right? If, if, if if the vaccine is incredibly effective, then it's actually fine if 5% of people don't get it or something. But if it's only 70% effective, then you need, you need, so, so that's like, flu has always been stuck on that, right? That it's like, if everybody got this shot that doesn't work that well, (laughs) we'd be in much better shape. But as you as an individual, the benefit is not that not that high, but here, like the the good news is that these are highly, as yes. least as far as we can tell, they're highly effective. So, like you, you yes. benefit a lot from getting it. Yes, you people will benefit a lot, and and, and you know that was not predetermined mm-hmm. that that would be the outcome, and 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 I think you and I would be having a very different conversation if the candidates so far had come out with fifty percent efficacy, which was the minimum mm-hmm. threshold the FDA set. Then you'd be get, have a whole different prospect. You'd be telling people, here's something new. You know, half the time it may, may help you, and you know, but it's brand new. It doesn't work. We really want you to take it. Um. But the you know that we're talking uh, the vaccines, um, uh, the two main ones that that are far along and are being going to be available shortly. I assume are over ninety percent effective. Yeah, or efficacious. It's kind of amazing. That's very high. I did want to want to make that point because we actually there was so much. Um, media coverage in the mm-hmm. intervening months of the prospect of this kind of low efficacy yes. vaccine. And there was a lot of hand-wringing about had the 50% threshold been set too low right. and, you know, all, all these other things. So I, it's important, I think, for people to hear the sort yes. of the, the good news that these vaccine, these candidates didn't just, like, limp over the line. <laughs> they 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 really they, they really hit they flew. it. Um, yeah, they hit it out of the park. So so that's very good. Um, and and people should really. I mean, on, on both on both ends, both it's it's like it's really good for you, but also that the the social sort of herd immunity yes. threshold um, is easier to clear. And also, as I understand it, uh, obviously this virus is quite transmissible. Like this is where yeah. where we are, but but not as, not as much as measles. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, I mean, I think a lot of us, we've all read stories about relatively small anti-vax populations sparking measles outbreaks, mm-hmm. but that has something to do with the the particular characteristics of, of the virus Mostly, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think we'll, we're hopefully between the vaccine scale up and then practicing some social distancing for a period, we will get to that point where this is really... Maybe it's going back to maybe we'll have a routine vaccination mm-hmm. environment for this, and let's hope no, we don't have another pandemic in the meantime. Um, but yeah, this this uh, I, the other thing I would say about these candidates is the si- side effects are very minimal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that you know people's arm may hurt and that kind of thing, but it's not like it, these are put you out for days right. kind of thing. So this that's a, good. There's not like a population that you would advise not get them because of side effects or, yeah, or anything I mean, like that. There, well, we'll have to see what the committee that makes those decisions ultimately so says, but I think we're in good shape in that regard. And, you know, the other, but there's a host of other challenges. Both both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines require two shots. Mm-hmm. They have some storage requirements and all of those things. Those can be managed, but, um, you know, I, I, people are going to have to come back for another shot. Yeah, I mean, it's just the basic like social logistics of these things are yeah are hard. Although some something that's interesting is that these are based on a new like a new yes. technology for making vaccines that yeah. should maybe give us. I mean, you don't want to be too complacent about anything, but but like some hope about combating viruses in general, 
in, in it's the very future. exciting from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this has been an area of research for a while. That's now now it's found its day, you know, and and it's been shown to be very effective and has a lot of promise. So uh, it's very exciting from that perspective. And you know, I I'd say with every horrible outbreak we've had, there's been an advances made mm-hmm. in, in combating horrible outbreaks. So. Yeah. <laughs> Ever closer to utopia. <laughs> Ever closer to combating the next horrible outbreak, at least from the scientific perspective. That's maybe good. Not no, and the, it is. I mean, this is this is by far the fastest vaccine development timeline, unbelievable in human history. Um, yeah. And if people, I mean, if you went back to the 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 mid sixties and yeah. told people you could have an eight month vaccine development timeline, right? They'd think that was crazy. I think people had said that two years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No way. That's impossible. Yet it's not. There you go. A miracle time. Okay, so Jennifer Cates, um, thank you so much. Um, but but before I, I finally let you go, I, I just I always ask people like, is is there anything else I, I should have asked you about here? Last last thoughts that you need to unburden yourself with. Uh, my my last thoughts are I want to end on an optimistic note because I I it's been a long haul of not feeling that way, and I do feel that way um, because of where we are with the development of vaccines, but. You know, the next uh, month, December, and then going into January are going to be tough. We don't, we won't really have the vaccine yet. The initial ones will be for a few, the select people that need it, and we won't have changed administrations yet. So, we just got to buckle down, you know, buckle up and be, be prepared. Um, but know that this is going to turn around. Stay safe. Be responsible. Safe. For wear your mask. A couple. Wear your mask. Couple months. Wear Get the some masks. More masks. <laughs> okay um thank you so much uh jennifer cates uh this was uh incredibly helpful uh learned a lot um and uh thanks as always to our sponsors on the weeds our producer jeffrey geld uh, and the weeds will be back on tuesday In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.